0: Hello, and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. This week, I'm talking to Desmond Dean, CEO of Odyssey Trust for Education. I had a really great conversation with Desmond. We talked about all kinds of things, his background and his career in teaching, the ideas that influenced him, he tells us about how deciding to participate in a BBC2 documentary kick-started the collaboration between Townley Grammar, where he was head teacher, and Erith School, that eventually became the Odyssey Trust for Education. Quite a unique uh, collaboration there between a grammar school and, as he calls it, a uh, secondary modern, locally. Uh, We also hear about how he, he worked together to really build those communities and expand the kind of classical ideas that sit behind the trust. Really interesting stuff there. We talk a little bit about the school's experiences of COVID and how beneficial those two schools found working together. I ask him about how he found the transition from head to CEO and he shares some really fascinating insights there. And then we look to the future. So I really hope that you enjoy our conversation. And as ever, I'd just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around topics. The views my guest and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth, authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Hello. Today I'm joined by Desmond Dean, who is CEO of the Odyssey Trust for Education. Hi, Desmond.
1: Hello. Hi, Caroline. How are you?
0: I'm good. Thank you for joining us. I hope you're well today. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey into school leadership?
1: Okay, sure. Uh, So, as you said, I'm I'm CEO now of the Odyssey Trust for Education. and I suppose in, in terms of my, my journey into, into leadership and, and how I came here, there's a, there's a short backstory. I'll give you the short version. Uh, um, so I was the uh, youngest of six children in, a, in an Irish immigrant family in South Wales. Um, and my experience, I didn't realise it at the time, but looking back, this was a very poor upbringing. Um, we've only got my labourer father's salary uh, for all of us. Um, But having that experience, I then had a fairly, what I could best describe as a pretty basic comprehensive education um, of the outcome of which was only myself and my sister went beyond O-levels as it was at the time. Um, And I went on into uh, teaching. Now I actually went to London at 19, stayed uh, studying theology, which was was not really going to provide me with much of a career, to be fair. And ended up in teaching really because I ran out of options um, and couldn't think of anything else to do, and it seemed to be a good stopgap for a while. Um, but then, fairly tragically, my father died in just as the start of my second year of uh, teaching. And without really being able to explain how that affected me, it certainly gave me this kind of impetus that I need to start doing something meaningful with this now instead of floundering around. I need to actually do something that can make a difference. Um, so I, I often come back to that particular point as galvanizing me to try and work out the, the rest of my, my route. Um, so from there, I, I effectively have had 30 years in, in education in five very different secondary schools, um, including in, in a special measures school uh, as my first leadership position. And learned a lot from that process. And I think the part of the, the background for me has been knowing I think partly from my upbringing, that you needed to know the job really well. You needed to have uh, done some of all the aspects of the job if you're ever gonna lead anybody and have credibility. Um, And so I did every kind of conceivable leadership role and function um, within those five years of of different schools. Um, And I think probably what's most interesting for me is that you, you find that there are some pivotal moments so such as that one uh, in my second year of teaching um, and those pivotal moments come where you have somebody who's a leader and I think there's two types of leaders there are the leaders who make you aspire and there's the leaders that make you perspire <laughs> a- and I had uh, I had I w- won't mention the leaders who made me perspire but I think everybody in YouTube has come across these people where you just feel you really shouldn't be doing this like this this, this is not what it should be like And then you have those who actually show you that there's a completely different way of doing this, and I want to be a bit like Ben. So when I went into a special measures school, the big leap for me to go from what was a successful school at the time into a senior leadership position in a school which was in special measures. And in fact, at the time time of my interview, it was named one of the 18 worst schools in the country. Back in the days when it always seemed to be a good idea to put this in the national press, so, the head teacher, Richard Hartnett at the time, uh, interrupted my interview to say, Look, you might not want to continue. I've just been called by the press to say this is going out today. You might, to, you might want to not go ahead. And I thought that was the decision, pivotal moment to say, Well, actually, no, I, I do want to go ahead. This this is where I need to be. Um, and he, he continued to be a, a brilliant mentor and, and role model for me. Uh, while I was there. And the next uh, sort of key pivotal head was the head teacher, Sue Rowell, who gave me my first position as a deputy head in a grammar school, having done all the comprehensive sector up to then. Um, and giving me, taking a real chance because I was the only non grammar candidate. Um, and I found out that was pretty commonplace um, to give a chance on somebody who had no experience in grammar schools whatsoever and certainly didn't have that background. Uh, to see actually what impact they had and give me quite a bit of autonomy um to develop my, my philosophy of education in that. Um and so they they were two really key pivotal moments and get me into leadership in a very practical sense. And I think probably the most one that affected my, my, my soul or perspective about leadership was um Sir Ken Robinson. Uh, I had the opportunity before before he passed to have met Ken and to, to be able to tell him that actually it was, it was listening to him and, and reading his works that actually inspired me to be the type of head teacher I wanted to become at that time, which was which was somebody that was creative. Up until that point, there wasn't really a lot about the creativity of education. Um, there wasn't a sense that that's the type of person you could be. And I wanted to be creative. Um, and through Sir Ken, it became apparent that you could be that as well. You could, education could be a creative enterprise. And I think he probably had the biggest influence at that point in terms of the style of head I wanted to be. And probably the style of leader I still want to be and still aspire to be. Uh, And that brought me into my first headship. And then actually from from that point, the first headship was 10 years with head of the Townie Grammar School. And then deciding the next step will have to be to form a trust. What more can we do with this? Uh, and where can we take it further? And I think that's always been a sense of the, the scanning the horizon, what, what's just over the horizon, uh, and that brought me to, to where I am now. I think
0: fantastic. I'm I'm interested um, to hear some some examples from your from your ten years um, in headship, perhaps of of that kind of creativity that you mentioned there. Is there any you can share?
1: Yeah. Well. <laughs> It's it's interesting, there's there's lots of different ways of explicit creative uh, activities. I think one of the things that's always guided me is that some of the best ideas don't come from within education. In fact, uh, it's quite woeful that that very often education isn't terribly creative um, and tends to just be a, a, a ping pong between one point of view and another without anybody looking at a new solution. Uh, so either harking back to something that was in the past, or looking to something that actually is going to change something that we already do, without actually rethinking. Um, so it's very often I've, I've sought outside of that to, to other writers beyond uh, education to try and bring some of their ideas into the way we work, like Malcolm Gladwell, etc. Um, but I think in terms of what we did in in the school itself, one one of the things we felt was going to be really uh, creative way of working was was to change a little bit about how we viewed um the curriculum itself and this has now come into the into trust too so we we looked really at, and, and influencing by the by the classics to so first of all point out we've got a house system which is not terribly revolutionary uh but in a girls selective school we chose um greek goddesses <laughs> as our um and wanted uh, the girls to actually really very much see themselves as, as powerful individuals um, and as dynamic, and, and that um, they had a power not only to to influence their own lives but everybody else's, and almost a, a social conscience and an obligation to do so. and The Greek goddesses were a good vehicle for that, not always the best role models, I have to say.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's um, a bad behavior, <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, um, but it just needs a more creative, imaginative way of doing it. We and also spend a great deal of time doing video work on uh, what the school did. And so actually I can give a speech and we can produce a perspective, but putting a one or one and a half minute um, video together actually conveyed an awful lot of what we did you know, key themes about social responsibility, uh, character, which was a core part of the work we did. Um, and then also in terms of that wider education, I think that's where it got most interesting that, what happens beyond normal classroom. So we began the concept of ambit, which again, from the original origin of the word ambition. So lots of grammar schools uh, and other aspirational schools will talk about ambition, and ambition very much gets seen as a climbing up a ladder uh, and professional success. Whereas the origin of the word ambition is ambit, which means wingspan, and it's about breadth. Um, and we very much made that a, a core pillar of the work that we did. That what our students, we needed our students to have, to breadth, a life-wide experience, mm-hmm. not just a lifelong experience. Uh, and that means opening up opportunities to you them know, that they might not have otherwise seen or experienced and challenged. Um, so we had, we had students. You we know, had an Olympic weightlifter, amongst the girls, a you female know,
0: Olympic weightlifter who. Can be- oh, sorry, that was my calendar going. Can you go back? Close it down, sorry. That was far too loud. Um, could you go back to say we've got an Olympic weightlifter? <laughs> yes.
1: So, uh, as an, an example of, of stretching the boundaries and, and, and thinking wider, um, one of our students um, became an Olympic weightlifter, competed in the 2012 Olympics. Fantastic. Um, at the same time, though, a number of our students who were also in the opening ceremony of the Olympics um, with, um, with the orchestra um and that idea that within the same context you can have your your weightlifter and your your orchestra from the same school um for what is just one school in the country which is a sense of that ambit that spread of experiences we have um trips international exchanges and programs that that we put in place which which had to be different and broader and wider um so inclusive rocket making projects with bosco state university um the students would take to silicon valley every year uh, for computing trips and actually took uh, part in, in projects with google and with facebook uh,
2: wow.
1: apps and we have quite a few female computer scientists as a result of, of that program um and this is coming from an origin where actually i think free, frequently particularly in girls technical school and particularly in ours um the sense was that they, they needed to go into medicine, or or maybe law, or maybe engineering, uh, but it, it was increasingly narrow and broadening that out to say actually there's a whole wealth of things from, from Olympic weightlifting to uh, acting, uh, computer science, um, and that it was endless. And that actually has, has run through the work we've done as a trust as well, that, that it's about that widening the wingspan in the end, on it. And that came from a, a creative dialogue, I think, about um, what ambition really meant uh, and, and the origins. of it. So that, that originated in, in just digging back into the classics um, and, and seeing, well, actually, this is what education is really about. And I think another aspect of that was the um, Trivium 21C, so uh, Martin Robinson's work, um, who has been a, a great friend and supporter and being influenced by his work to, to implement a trivium curriculum into, into the grammar school and now into uh, the second model that we've, we've taken on in the Trust as well. Uh, and we actually have a 21C curriculum uh, embedded in both, which is that, that wider breadth. It's also a recognition that um, students begin as novices and they have to learn first before they start to be critical and, and to understand. Um, and you have to sort of do this in a stage process. Um, and so we've built that very much into our, into our curriculum. And, and these are the ideas that are in any one particular format, a collection of them that come together uh, and synthesize in, into what we want to do. Uh, there is no sort of set manual and it's certainly not set in following a particular path in terms of curriculum uh, that's already there. Um, they're greatly influenced by individuals. But it takes a bit of creative thinking um, and a creative teams that, to be able to build that into something that is relatively unique um, and has a, an element of risk to it because you do something that's new that's not tried and tested.
0: Fantastic stuff. Now, um, we you've just you've referenced your your trust quite a bit, and um, for, for listeners to understand, your your trust is made up of of the grammar school and what was. Um, Formerly uh, a maintained secondary school, and and you're you're working together now as as one trust, which seems like quite an un- unlikely um, combination to to some people. And obviously, you've you've, you've talking of t- talked about a lot of the things that that go on in inside the, the grammar school, kind of moving their way over, um, it'd be really interesting to hear um, about the sort of context of each school and and, and how that collaboration really came about.
1: Sure, yeah, Um, it it is fairly unique uh, and and individual in in many respects, Um, and I suppose at the the very core is the fact that these these are two quite different schools. Um, So they're they're very close in proximity, they are um, about two miles away from each other um but serving quite uh, fairly different uh communities they're not necessarily serving the same communities but in the same local authority um and i said you've got the the grammar school is a, it's a large grammar school it's a, a selective girls grammar school uh 1500 students which is possibly one of the largest in the country um uh, particularly given it's, it's only girls co-ed in, in sixth form It has a fairly broad, um, for a grammar school, fairly broad socioeconomic intake and a very broad ethnic um, composition as well. So it's roughly about a third black African, a third white British and and, and a third um, Asian or Indian probably the majority population in there. Uh, I believe it's got the largest black African population of of any grammar school in, in the country um and that's been a significant aspect of, of the school's work that that drive around diversity and, and, and taking the strength from diversity that's in there um and then uh and that's a, an outstanding grammar school and then i think the secondary mon, which was era school and it's now king henry school since we took it over similar size it's, it's been roughly about 1500 students um it's co-ed it has a high uh, level of disadvantage and a high S.E.M. intake within that, serving a community which is fairly tightly knit around it, whereas the grammar school takes draws from further afield inevitably um, mm-hmm. because that, they're, they're not as wide as some, uh, and it has a fairly troubled past, the, the secondary modern. Uh, I term it a secondary modern because I, I, I acknowledge that I think in a, any selective authority, a comprehensive score, uh, in close proximity to selective schools is affected by that by that dynamic and I think there's, there's respect due to Schools in those circumstances to, to, to Categorize and second ones as, as different comprehensives. That's up to everybody concerned to make that decision um, But it has had a fairly checkered and, and troubled past um, It's yeah, had, a, had a series of, sort of probably not the best leadership over time um and, and some decisions that didn't really work very well for it um and really had lost its way i think quite quite significantly and there was no real support for it um uh, it, it had been left to, to, to flounder i think within that and, and previous attempts to do so had, had failed so it was an odd um uh, combination and the origin is even other then of, of how the trust came about because uh as the head of the grammar school at the time having coming to my sort of 10th year of that, uh, had begun with the governors to work on, well, what do we do next? Um, it's, it's, it's a big school, we're not just gonna expand. There are things we want to be able to achieve, and we can't always achieve those on our own, one of which was social mobility. So as much work we had done in social mobility and had been uh, relatively successful with it, we were never going to really increase the numbers coming into the school in any significant way. Um, and we could do more and continue to do more, and it has actually gone up um, over time as well, and it continues to do so. But there were so many students who were capable who didn't get into program school because it, in the end, there's a selective test, and some get in, that, some won't. And sometimes that their likelihood of doing that is, is set well before they sit that test by the experience they've been uh, and their primary education and, and how that's been affected and their, their, their backgrounds, that maybe have just not given them sufficient advantage to be able to make the most of that. So we knew that those students were there, we knew they were, in, they were there locally, and we couldn't access them. We couldn't access them in the primaries, uh, only to a limited extent. Uh, we couldn't influence that. Um, so as a grammar, we felt actually we needed to do more. It wasn't enough just to look after the students who came into our own school gates we had a wider community responsibility. And you can do various token gestures around that, but they're not going to make a massive difference if we really had this uh, opportunity we needed to use it. So we began to engage with the idea well, if we form a trust, we can have a greater impact and greater influence. And maybe some of the ideas which, which, which we think have worked, we can extend, but also maybe we can learn new ones from uh, collaboration. I think we'd also got very Frustrated and I had got frustrated with a very binary education thinking that we were coming across, where you're either in or you're out, you're either selective or non selective, you're either progressive or traditional. Um, and this just seemed to be getting more and more rooted. And in, a, in our own authority line, the that, that opportunity for collaboration is so limited um, because nobody really wanted to. You know, There's no real sense that we had to work together or we should work together for common cause. So, we thought the only way to do that is actually to, to do it ourselves, to form a trust, and began the conversation around schools that might be interested in, in working with us. And through that process, we had a couple of schools we, we were working with at the time, and one of those schools is um, the school that we eventually ended up um, combining, joining in the trust. Um, but at the same time, we had made a decision because of the perception of um, Ground schools nationally. Sometimes they, um, the wrong perception. We felt that we would do a, a documentary for the BBC, um, and it was one of those things. I think that everybody tells you not to do. Um, everybody, every head teacher, or school leader, uh, and they still tell me this. Um, why on earth did you do that? Why would you do that? But we felt that we had a responsibility to to convey what our grand, our school did. Um, because otherwise people won't understand they're still thinking about a 50s model of of grammar schools and and that's not fair. And in particular, we felt our own students needed a fairer um, representation. The amount of times they have been called privileged um, because they went to a grammar school and if you knew our students, you'd know they're very far from from privileged. Um, And it was quite insulting. They actually need to have their own voices, and be included in this. So we began this this grammar this um, documentary about grammar schools. And it was uh, uh, Grammar schools who, who will get in around selective tests, through part, and we engaged the other secondary modern school to be part of that. So not actually these, would like the two schools involved. Would you would you take part? That coincided with us working with them on the idea of a trust, and it actually so happened because there's months and months of filming before these things go out that we were doing all of that work in The lead and By the time the documentary was aired, we had actually pretty well come to the, the decision point of uh, forming a trust with them. Uh, and that became the Office of Trust for Education. And therefore, the last part of the documentary actually picks up that, that bit of the process within it, which for us was a brilliant aspect of, of being able to demonstrate a little bit of the thinking and engagement uh, and, and how these things might come about but it was also doing it in the public eye. It, it meant that we formed this. Everybody knew exactly, more than any other, I think, trust has ever been formed. Everybody had to have the opportunity to see this, to see the two schools in action beforehand. Um, and there was often commitment, a very public commitment, that we were going to change things for the better for, for both schools. Um, and, and that's how we, the Odyssey Trust came about. Uh, it formed in September, 2018. Uh, the documentary went out the uh, just the summer before that. Um, so it was really right on, on the cusp of, of the documentary going that, that it was formed at that point. And we, we changed the name of the school to King Henry School, give it a fresh start, uh, and began the work. And, we, and we've been doing that since, with some interruption by a, a troublesome pandemic.
0: It, it's, I mean, it's a very unique uh, story in the... Uh... Uh, I mean, a lot of, a lot of trusts come together for sort of interesting, different reasons. And this uh, is really feels like one of the most, um, most unique ones that I've, I've, I've heard. And as you say, you were doing quite a lot of it in the, in the public eye. Um, And, uh, you know, we've talked around a little bit there how, um, you know, some people are very hostile to the idea of grammar schools. That's quite politically charged, as is the concept of um, academy trusts. Uh, so combining the two, two together, um, you know, was there opposition to the schools coming together? And, and how did you tackle it?
1: It's interesting. I mean, I think probably have to qualify opposition. Um, there There's certainly lots of comments uh, and, and lots of feedback, I think is, is one term for it. And frequently what, what I've discovered over time is that the people who, who sometimes are most vociferous are the ones who have no stake in the game whatsoever um, and they're on the sidelines. Um, and obviously doing the the media work with the BBC, I've become to get quite used to ignoring those people. Um, uh, and sometimes it pays to be deaf to to those voices because they don't have a stake in the game, it's not for them. For the communities that that we were engaged with, so the, the parents, the students and the staff, their voices obviously were far more important than that. And we were very conscious, uh, about how we went into this and, and how people perceived it. We were surprised, as we have been on a number of occasions with this, was, I wish I could say there was a, a roadmap for the whole process and we followed it by the numbers, but actually, in the case of it, And I was fully expecting a lot more opposition um, to the grammar school taking over the, the, the secondary model, particularly because sometimes that was portrayed publicly as being the grammar school teaching the secondary model how to, how to do things. And we were at pains to, to avoid that uh, because we knew full well that wasn't what we were going to be able to do. Um, so, what I was expecting from the parents uh, of the other school uh, an opposition and a cynicism and, and, and reluctance to it. And actually, we have got something very different. Um, we've got a really high expectation about the difference we were going to make and the timescale in which we were going to do that. Uh, we were very much welcomed. Um, as the we had a reputation locally as, as grammar school, and there was an assumption that by simply by being virtue of being the grammar school, we will go into wave a magic wand and everything was going to be transformed. So our big issue was first of all managing the expectations, knowing that actually these are really fairly complex problems to resolve, and they've done it over time. That the school had arrived in its position over a very long period of time as a required improvement school. Um, it wasn't going to get out of that uh, on its own, and the complex the, the, the problems it had were quite complex. So we couldn't solve it by simply putting a few grammar school labels on, on things, um, and we knew that. So part of it was just managing that, so it wasn't opposition, it was, it was the opposite. Though We were also conscious that there would be anxiety from staff. There was some anxiety from parents from grammar school where uh, the concern would be: well, Will the standards drop at the grammar school because all our attention will now be on on this school, and and maybe it's going to take work. Um, and I think with both of those, communication was was key. Writing to the parents uh, of the grammar school early on and explaining why we were doing this, we had for a long time had at the core of our, our purpose a social conscience. Um, that was very much the nature of the school. Our students and our staff and our school was about social consciousness, about changing society. And our parents bought into that. That's one of the reasons they, they wanted their children to go to the school. So this was part of that, that progression. If we really mean this, then we need to do something. We can't just sit here in our ivory tower and look out at how, how awful everything else is and, 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 and wail about it. But actually we need to engage with it actively. Um, so, for most parents, really, that was the next logical step, and, and they had the, we had their support. Um, but you also had the anxiety, you have done the anxiety of staff. What's going to happen to me? Am I going to be moved between the two schools? Am I going to be able to do that? Um, so, we had to reassure people very early on that that, that wasn't the intention. It would be our ideal that staff would feel that they could and would work across the two, but we weren't going to compel anybody to do that. Um, and we recognized that just because you're successful in one of those schools doesn't mean you could be successful in the other, not not without some transition and training. Um, and that took a lot of face-to-face contact, uh, a lot of parents' meetings and engaging with them, lots of written communications. I think it also meant for, and I felt this very personally about credibility, that uh having to explain a little bit myself and my own backstory to understand why we're doing this, that where this came from, um, because of that mistrust about um, multi academy trusts, that it's all about the money, um, and certainly we came across that when we were trying to form the trust. The from governments and other schools, perhaps who were more conscious about their their treasure trove than than they were about the well-being of the community, um, and we were conscious that actually that there were some that see have cynical look at trusts. Trying to convince in a society which has got quite cynical about trusts that actually there's moral integrity behind them uh, and that they're led by people, teams of people who have a genuine purpose um, to improve things, Um, uh, that actually takes a bit of work to do. And it does mean putting yourself personally on the line a little bit uh, and and being vulnerable uh, to, to that. Um, but I think if you're not prepared to do that you really shouldn't be doing this, this work you really do have to invest yourself personally into it so I think gaining credibility um, and I was fortunate in that respect because I wasn't a traditional grammar school head who had come through the grammar school system myself and had never set foot in a, in a struggling school the fact that I cut my teeth on a special measures school in my early leadership actually gave me some degree of credibility it was helped further that I ended up um, taking on the leadership of the school as well. So pretty early on, when we took it over, I took over as the acting head. Uh, and I was therefore the head of the, both schools, simultaneously. Uh, but that didn't mean I was walking the corridor um, and engaging with students and parents and understanding. I think the key thing, before you can understand, or before you can be understood, you have to understand. So you have to start listening to people. And that really gave me an opportunity to listen can get a sense of that community, their hopes and aspirations and their fears around this and to better fine-tune how we communicated uh, and the priorities that we set as well that it served them. Um, And I think that was a lesson I learned there far better than I did in in any other context previously. Um, And and it sticks with me now, That listen first before you start speaking and and then try to understand people.
0: Yeah, it's very, very true. And um i'm interested because obviously during during that sort of courting process it's often um for the trust to articulate their kind of education vision and the the concept behind it or in some situations where it's a more kind of collaborative uh, process that that might be something that's kind of iterated between the schools themselves could you could you tell me a little bit about the kind of concept that that sits behind odyssey and and how that came into being
1: yeah, I, and actually, I think, I think this helped a great deal in the process, although sometimes I think these things end up layered over the top of work uh, and are not at the core of it. And actually, this was, this was very much the other way around, and this comes back to that creative leader idea that the creative concept of what we were doing had to be there at the start if we were going to get the message across in the way that it needed to be. Um, and again, it might seem very grammar school-y, to start uh, a trust with a classical origin and classical name. Um, and to some extent it is, because we, we felt that all, all the community, our you know, the Townley Grammar School community and King Henry's community should have access to classics in, in whatever form, that it should be something familiar.
2: Um,
1: I think too frequently it, classics are used to exclude people uh, when when key leaders Use classical references, uh, they're just as much actually trying to exclude a group of people as they are to actually demonstrate how clever they are, um, and, and what we really want to do is, and actually this is just a, this is just a normal story, the, the Odyssey is a story about a journey that goes wrong, and if we're going to do this, let's be honest, this is probably going to go wrong at times, it's not going to be straightforward. Uh, and the, the destination isn't going to be the, the the point of this. It's going to be the journey that's the important that's the important point. We don't have a destination, um, and I think you can't get a better example of a journey that goes horribly wrong than
0: And also takes a lot longer than was expected. A lot longer,
1: yeah, <laughs> a, a, a quick turnaround. This is no this is no superhead to turning from the meeting in, in a year and then going off somewhere else. Um, this was we were going to be in this for for some time. Um, so it gave us a good starting point to, to about a journey in itself. But it also, when, when she started to dig into it, there was so much more that actually started to build around this. So yeah. one of the key things, obviously, about the Odyssey is that this is his journey, 10-year journey back to it know, after the Trojan War. Um, and he is at the whims of all different kinds of factors. His, his crew, who uh, he, want to stop off and do a little bit of raiding here and there, which, and it all goes horribly wrong, um, and the gods, um, and his own mistakes and errors. I mean, Odysseus himself is a flawed individual, which makes it such an interesting story. So the idea that actually we are not only get it right, and, so, and we're all driven by our own human uh, drives, uh, and, and sometimes that takes us down the wrong direction, and we pay for it. We're all fallible. Beginning from a point of view that actually this, this fallibility in this was important, but also that we're at the whim of the gods. Um, and those capricious gods, whether they be the DFE or any <laughs> other organization, sometimes they work for you and sometimes they work against you. Um, and the the role of the trust really is to navigate through that and to respond to it, because we can't control those gods. They're going to affect us, whether they be the DFE or they be a, a global pandemic. Uh, it, it's going to hit us. And we're going to, it's only gonna be us how we work as a crew that's gonna enable us to actually get through that. Um I think beginning with that which doesn't seem like a, a an optimistic, hopeful story, particularly that, that this is gonna be gonna struggle, there's gonna be storms, and, yeah, we're not all gonna make it. Um but actually what it does do is make it a very heroic story.
2: Uh and
1: I think what has been lacking in, in education is that sense of of courage, of of heroism. Um, I think there's a, there's a quote I really like from Anais Nin, which, which says that the world um, expands or contracts according to our courage. And I think what we wanted for everybody in the community, the students of us well, to have the courage to do something that's, that's different, to, to take a chance, to take risks, and your world will grow according to that. But if you hide away, then it will stay small. A grammar school will stay as a single ground school catering for its group students if he doesn't have the courage to do something different. And the secondary modern will stay struggling if he has not had the courage to reach out to what might have been seen as this opposition in order to do a collaborative work. Uh, and, and that courage has underpinned how we've, we've operated as a trust to make courageous decisions, which will sometimes go wrong, um, but will have the interest of our community, at uh, heart of that. And if you don't do something courageous, you won't do something new, and nothing develops, and that's built into every fibre now of what we do as a trust, um, to to be courageous and, and heroic. Just as every individual in the trust has their own hero story and their own the hero journey set to undertake, um, so do we as a trust as a whole. Um, and it seemed to just be far more meaningful and far more in tune with our character. To have that kind of uh, story. And, and it's, it's built into some, some uh, great ideas about how we structured things. So um, we, have a, um, we have this concept of ship, sail, compass. Uh, so we divide up what we do in, in these three parts. You know, any voyage, you need a ship, you need sails, and you need a compass. So the ship is our structures and our systems. And a lot of our time has been built around that. Um, what sort of structures and systems? How do we operate? And recognising how important that is, it's not just an add-on. Having central services is not just a nice thing to have to trust, and it's not just about the economies of scale. Actually, we need these things to function well, so that you can do the things you want to do, just as you need a ship to get anywhere. The sails are innovation. Uh, The idea of the wings sort of inspiring us. It's the innovations that we have, the, the things that drive us forward, the new ideas, the concepts, the pedagogy. Um, this is the thing that makes us progress. But like with any other sailing, if you have too much sail, then you can size. Um, so sometimes you've got to trim it. Disciplined innovation. Sometimes you, you do things, sometimes you're we not going to do this now because that's just going to take us it over. It's going to be too much. Um, and then the compass is very often it's used, it's the values. Um, it's values that underpin us. And we have to keep checking that compass because if you go just one degree off, over time, that's a significant difference in terms of where you're heading. So we have to constantly check our compass. Is this in tune with our values? we
2: are just been in tune with us. because
1: if we don't check that, we find ourselves six months or a year down the line and actually we're not doing what we said we were going to do. And our board of trustees, really, they hold that compass.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: they check us on a, on a regular basis that we're, we're, we're still in line with our values. So we found that being creative in, in the sense of the trust has actually allowed us to to explain it and illustrate it um, in ways that are a lot less dry than some standard publications and, and uh, structures that you may have in, in some of organisations.
0: Yeah, it's an incredibly um, beautiful and poetic uh, way of, of thinking about it. And uh, you mentioned there some of the things that we, you know, have have less control over global pandemic uh, being one. And I guess I'm I'm kind of interested. To know we've we've seen quite a bit of stuff in the press about how um sort of independent and selective schools have supported young people remotely versus um you know more comprehensive offerings um what has been your experience of of kind of um the partial closure period or 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 the situation that you might be in now across each each setting what's been the same and what's been different
1: well i mean it's remarkable but probably for us not altogether surprising that there's been very little difference between the two. Um, You're still tackling the same issue and yes, I think regardless, where the the difference is is in terms of of disadvantage and advantage, more advantage. Families have more opportunities to engage with virtual learning more than others but they're spread across the board. They're Mm -hmm. not just in school and and not in everyone. They're actually in both. There are advantaged families in in, in King Henry School and there are disadvantaged Families at, at, at Sandy Grammar, um, and they have the same you know, same issues, the same experiences. They sometimes might be uh, might come across differently. So I think particularly in, in Sandy Grammar, we've, we've had uh, quite a few uh, parents who are working vocational professions, like National Health Service, and um, they're, well, they're terribly high income, but also they're um, they're quite stretched during this time of pandemic because they're working in the public sector. Uh, frequently, and therefore, they're, they're the ones actually still working, but also they are rather who are working at home. That access we realise very quickly, as so many schools did, it's not about do they have internet access at home, it's how many people are using it mm-hmm. at any one point. Not everybody working at home, and some of them are families, are large families, then actually, how do they all manage to cater for that? Not everybody's working on an individual laptop on their on a separate internet connection, for instance. Um, so realising that that was, was actually true across the board, um, what was clearly different in terms of its scale. So the number of disadvantaged students, the number of at-risk at risk students at the second model school was obviously a lot higher. Um, and therefore, uh, there was an early concern about their welfare and well-being by, by not being in school, uh, and how we engage in contact with them. Um, what we found was, was very similar the pressures on staff are very similar, but the numbers are who were either infected or had to isolate become very similar. They're all almost identical at the moment. Mm.
2: You know,
1: they're, they're two different communities. Inevitably, it's been the uh, older students who have uh, demonstrated symptoms of infected and isolating first, because probably during their social time, they have mixed more than younger students,
0: and you're you're in mm-hmm. in Kent, aren't you? So infection rates are quite high.
1: It's it's uh we're, it's a London borough, basically, but it's yeah. on the board. Uh So technically, we're London. Um, yeah. yeah, we are. No, it keeps
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> No man's land in between. I think, um, but that I mean that was interesting. I mean, the other thing that we found really uh, quite interesting was. Just how much the, the, the technology, first of all, how, how much you could move on technology fairly quickly. So, we had, you know, like everybody else, you got the announcements of, of school closures, and then within two days, we had to have a virtual uh, curriculum available. Whereas, in normal circumstances, there would be two years of development, uh, probably, and, and, and then maybe getting in and so we make it work. Making it work is not the problem, making it sustainable is, is the problem. Uh, and now this far in, this is where the cracks begin to show because not only have we got students out, we have significant numbers of staff out because either they, you know, they tested positive or they in contact with somebody who has, uh, been told to isolate, um, and without teachers you, you don't have the score, as a matter what happens with everybody else. But those numbers have been pretty comparable and actually we've found also that being able to work as a trust provided degree of support to both of those schools that would never have been as individual schools. Um, even just down to the, the two head teachers being able to get on the phone to each other and compare notes in a way they would never be able to do uh, normally. Um, but also having the trust central teams being able to support uh, where necessary in terms of uh, guidance and support um, or again just that collaborative working and problem solving and the reassurance that it's it's okay. It's not just here, it's yeah. somewhere else. We've got a similar problem, we can, we, we can tackle it together. Uh, we can compare, you can have a a, a, a near, that will listen to what all the issues are and some advice and guidance. I think this is one of those things that will really demonstrate the value of trusts over single academies. Um, I don't think that will in any way Um, change now once the pandemic is is thankfully over at some point that this this lesson about that collaborative support and how important it is, will stay and trust maybe eventually will have turned that corner from being that slightly cynical view of what they are to actually this is a really supportive arrangement we've Mm -hmm. done well um, and we're better together
0: and um, obviously you've had a a long career in, in education, but how have you found that, that move from head teacher to CEO? And, and you know, often for a lot of people, it's not something that they've seen unless they've worked in a trust themselves, so they don't necessarily have a model for it. How, how, have, you, how have you found kind of growing into that? Uh,
1: I mean, that's been really interesting for me personally. Um, I don't know, I really put thought into the difference until i was there uh, and then I, I knew what we wanted to do as a trust and i knew what was what was required uh but how much that was going to change what i did and i think there's a tendency to think that you, well, as a ceo you're just like a, a bigger head or, or you've just got a bigger school or whatever it is um but it's it's fundamentally different uh and it took a while for me because as i say when we when we started i i was initially the head of both schools so i'm ceo executive head and um in order to make that and that was really useful experience but it wasn't giving me a lot of time to do the ceo role and that was of stuck in in various gaps that you might have of uh, some very early morning starts
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: but as actually that the the two heads have taken their positions and have uh, bedded in uh, and are uh, two sort of brilliant entities that we have sure as well um it's actually given the scope to work with that wider executive team and to start to think about being a what it is to be a CEO um, and I think the things I've really noticed the difference is that first of all it is the landscape if you've, you've got a much bigger landscape to look at and therefore you have to have a bigger view around things you, you can't drill down into the, the detail in, in the way that you would have done as a head you don't get the feedback you would have had as a head so when, I, when things were always difficult as a head I'd go and walk around the school and I'd talk to students and it gives you a sense of, of place and time. It's not as easy to do that as a CEO, um, although students of both schools have seen me as a head teacher, um, that won't last forever because I'll become more and more from them. Um, so you're not necessarily going to get it that way in, in the same way, um, but you have to keep your eye, you have to have a line of sight with the students and the community without necessarily having the regular contact. But that has to inform your, your perspective on the landscape. But that landscape is pretty broad, uh, and it's a horizon scanning, I think, the, the whole time. I think is also very much uh, more akin to the architecture of leadership, uh, leaders architect, where you, you're constructing something. Um, so you've got to keep an eye on what that's supposed to look like. Um, and you've got to think about the design and the construction and work with multiple teams to do that. Uh, And I think that's the other key aspect, although it always feels like it's important as a head to build teams, I've never felt it more important about recruiting and developing the right talent than I do now as a CEO. Um, Finding the right people and putting the right people in the right positions uh, is uh, fundamental to to it working. And I, I think lots of heads, and I certainly felt this way, feel fairly isolated. It's probably the loneliest leadership position you can take. You know, first day, door closes on your office and you have to figure out what it is you're doing. and Everybody seems you already know. Um, and I think even when there are head teachers' networks, they never really provide the support that you sometimes need. And if you're lucky, you get a really good mentor or coach. Um, but I think as a CEO, I'm really seeing the benefit of engaging with other CEOs and I've found that that's much easier to do than I was able to do as a head. There's less sense of competition. There's more of a broader view and a bigger landscape. There's less defensiveness. CEOs are far more willing to share. Um, and not, we don't feel so much in a competitive environment. At least CEOs I've, I've engaged with.
0: That's, that's um, interesting. Um, do you think that's maybe because actually you're 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 building... Or, or, an organisation that is trying to be more than the sum of its parts—that's actually, in a lot of cases, in more of a startup mode, two or three years in, rather than having to sort of bear responsibility for an individual school that should be performing at a certain level. Why do you? Why do you think that is? I'm curious.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think there is an element of the startup to it, where there are lots of startup trusts and CEOs who are all reaching out to find out well how do you do this how how are we going to resolve that. Um and, and wanting to share. Uh I think you also have just a, a geographically a broader network than you than
2: have mm-hmm. to head.
1: Um so you're not in close proximity. Uh, it's always difficult to collaborate with a head teacher down the road quite a lot of students at some point and the same results. Um so I, I think that broader aspect but I think also you your mindset has to change as a CEO. To be more expansive, to be more open, uh, to see that the value of your networks, because what your your networks are the, the strength of your trust. Um, and I can't remember who said this. It was a quote, and I really like it. It was um, my my net worth is my network.
2: Oh,
1: yeah. uh, kind of stuck with me that actually my value as a CEO is in the networks I can I can forge for the trust that will support it. Whether that be for advice or guidance, through peer-to-peer uh, reviews or support, um, That's to me I can do that the heads really can't, um, and may really not have the time to do anyway. Um, so engaging openly with um, other CEOs is a is a key part, not just CEOs of organizations, organisation, and not just within education either. Um, that's the sort of breadth of this. Whereas I think inevitably with headship, although it initially feels like it's pretty broad, it's still relatively narrow around your school uh, and its community. Um, and that's right, I think, for the head. That is that what be primary concern. I think you have to expand beyond that and be a lot more open. And I think I've become a lot more open than I was in the head um, and a lot more willing to try to understand uh, others and their contexts and learning from them um then perhaps as a head i was i think as a head you you maybe are more inclined to want to be understood and to understand um uh, because you're having to get something across you're having to get a message across, and deal with the day day. Uh, i think as a ceo you can take the step back and, and start to learn from others more um and that's what's made it actually really exciting it, despite all different roles i've done being ceo has been the most exciting uh opportunity that i've ever had uh, so far um and it's a failure because i think a lot of people are still learning how to do this
0: definitely those are really fascinating insights thank you for sharing and and finally what are your plans for the the future of the trust
1: well i think we we've spent the first couple of years with the interruption of a a global pandemic um, building the trust and the structures and and although we still have work to do within that um we have some elements that we we've, we've put in place and we want to see how those uh expand and the impact i think it's still for us it's, it's almost creating the proof of concept that this type of trust working in this way creating it in this way can work really effectively it's not going to be for everybody um and it's it's, it's not going to be universal and, and this is not necessarily going to be the model for Large trusts uh, across Britain, but actually there is room for this. Um, so I think part of our the, the next few years is actually getting that proof of concept shared more widely. Whether it's simply that other heads or governors um, or trustees see that this is a model that actually might be quite, quite to them and, uh, and do something similar, or even that they they choose to do it with us. Um, there actually there's there's a concept of, a, of a, a multi-accountry trust or trust in here that serves a number of different purposes and, and resolves a number of other issues uh, that are currently there in education. One of which I mentioned earlier is that binary thinking uh, and that sort of reluctance to cl- meaningful collaboration.
2: Um,
1: so I think what we wanted to do is, is, is get the message out, uh, um, to share it more and also learn a little bit more from, from others as well in that process. Certainly to serve our communities far better. Uh, it's our goal to do so, but we've, we've got a way still to go Uh we're understanding our communities better and we know them. And I think particularly post-pandemic, the need for an organisation like ours, which is at the moment with two very large secondaries in the same local authority, uh, fairly close to each other, that the opportunity for us to have a real impact on our local community um, uh, positively uh, is there for us to realise. So... We have for instance, um, we've established now uh, the, the Odyssey 6 where we actually, re- we're bringing elements of the two six forms together. Um, mm. So the opportunities just expand by virtue of, of the trust. So we have a you know, the range from vocational qualifications to academic A airports available to some students rather than having to make sometimes very difficult choices between yeah, having to leave a school to go somewhere else to pursue it because no one school now is able to offer that breakfast of post 16 qualifications. Um, we have a, uh, a sports academy uh, within the trust as well, which is helping so, um, with um, uh, football and, and basketball in there is key, making that available to a wider breadth because very often schools sometimes become one trick ponies mm. in grammar school, and that way you're. It's an academic route. Like half back to our Olympic weightlifter. That wasn't that wasn't going to be her her future, even though she studied eight levels with us. Um, having them to have that opportunity, which sometimes the grammar school can't do because you can't do everything, particularly with constrained circumstances. So that Odyssey six provision um and shown actually combined, we we, mm. we give our a choice. And the other element we, we put in, which we're keen to see develop is an arts and culture uh, pillar. So we have a director of arts and culture across the trust. His role well, is to promote performing visual arts and the, the, the culture curriculum. Uh, and again, that's one of the things which sometimes is the first thing to go. You'll notice in grammar schools that the arts are always protected, even though it's, it can be quite costly to do so. Um, but they'll be there. But very often, in Comprehensive and Secular Models, when they're struggling, they're some of the first things to go. They can't resource it. Um, it doesn't get the status it should do. I think there are exceptions to that. But we wanted to make sure that that was at the heart. If any young person from any background comes through our trust, they get access to a rich, and full performing visual arts curriculum as well. Um, and it's not just for some students. So. Seeing how that develops and becomes a core, particularly when it's so difficult to sustain that. Um and, and it's again one of those things where you can only really do this through collaboration. Yes. You can't do this on your own. You have to look across the trust to, to make it workable. So seeing some of those things um start to uh, bring some fruition um to some of our people in our community and the outcomes from that, I think that's the next few years that we're looking forward to.
0: Fantastic. And any final words for our listeners in closing?
1: Yeah, I think probably I I would come back to that that concept of of the the heroic. I think if we could have a more of a sense of of the heroism of of education, um, we spend a lot of time I think discussing the the trials and tribulations of education and problems that are there, but it is truly an heroic journey. And I know that the term hero gets bandied around quite frequently um for particularly in the public sector and, and well deserved in, in, in many, many cases. Actually the idea that we're we all have to be a bit courageous, I think now more so than ever. But we have to find that courage to to try things new um and to do things differently. Rather than I think the tendency of been sometimes to try and pull the difference down and, and prevent it and um, if it doesn't fit into a particular model. I think key for leaders here also, and I'm sure many leaders already recognize, is that these solutions, these answers aren't going to come from government, any government. They're not going to come from the Department for Education. They're come from us. Um, we will create the education uh, for the future um, on the ground in our, in our trusts and with our communities. It won't become through some legislation or uh, some individual minister, uh, and the sooner we realise not to wait for the gods to, you know, to lay out the path for us, actually the, the better off I think we'll be.
0: Well, what a what a powerful note to end on, and and yeah, thinking thinking of all those education heroes out there.